I'll start by saying the planning committee members have no relevant financial disclosures to make. Dr. Carlini has commercial disclosures, but they've been determined not to be relevant to the content of this activity. For more information on his disclosures, please see the commercial support details in the Outlook calendar invitation for this event. Um, Dr. Carlini's decision to become a neurologist stemmed from his fascination with the biology of the nervous system. In his practice, he emphasizes his scientific approach to medicine and enjoys figuring out the diagnosis puzzle. He has a straightforward approach to medicine and caring for his patients. He says, I want to provide as much time for my patients as I can and provide the best medical care possible. He's a graduate of Harvard University and earned both his PhD in neuroscience and medical degree from Stanford University School of Medicine. And after completing an internship at OHSU, he returned to Stanford for residency in neurology, followed by a fellowship in clinical electrophysiology. Dr. Carlini's clinical interests include stroke, epilepsy, migraine, dementia, movement disorders, and multiple sclerosis. He has expertise in clinical neurophysiology and in the use of botulinum toxin injections to treat a variety of neurologic disorders. He's actively involved in clinical research and has served as a principal investigator in more than 60 clinical trials, spanning a wide range of neurologic disorders, including Alzheimer's disease, Parkinson's disease, stroke, multiple sclerosis, epilepsy, migraine, and neuropathies. And I still sometimes think of Dr. Carlini as the new guy who joined Dr. Neris and Dr. Sullivan. What year was that that you came to the Valley? 1993. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Almost 30 years ago. Yeah. And for those of you uh, on Teams, you will not be able to unmute your microphone. So if you have questions, please type them into the Q&A chat. Uh, okay, Dr. Carlini, welcome. Thank you for inviting me. Uh, I've been told that uh, I can take this mask off. Yeah. <laughs> well, well. <laughs> um, I think I'm far enough away from everybody. So without further ado, we'll embark on a little discussion uh, about migraine, which is an extraordinarily common condition. And one that has been known to mankind for a very long time. Uh, there's some evidence that as long ago as 7,000 years before the birth of Christ, that human Neolithic surgeons were operating on skulls to release evil spirits, perhaps to treat head pain. This particular procedure of trepanation uh, actually is very old, and some of their um, victims, no, some of their patients actually survived the procedure. You can tell that because the edges of the skull wound were rounded. There was healing. So this particular patient must have survived at least for several months, perhaps years, after his Neolithic neurosurgery. Okay. And then um, 4,000 years after that, a long time, in the year 3000 before Christ, there's actually a Sumerian poem that speaks about sick headache. And if you talk to patients about migraine, they often, even nowadays, refer to their headaches as sick headaches, headaches associated with vomiting and nausea. And the tablet on the right actually says, and my concubine said unto me, not tonight, honey, or I have a headache. 
And that is actually germane because one of the things that's so bad about migraine is that it interferes with function. It prevents people from working. It prevents people from interacting with their family. It actually stops people from doing things even if they don't have a headache. What do I mean by that? People with migraine are so worried that they're going to get a headache that they often do not attend scheduled events. They don't go to birthday parties. They don't go to weddings because they're worried that if they go there, they're going to get a headache. So they, they may suffer from their migraines even when they're not having a headache. In 1500 BC, uh, an Egyptian papyrus speaks of a headache with many of the features of migraine. And it also mentions a cure strapping a baby crocodile to the head. But unfortunately, Medicare won't pay for that. <laughs> In 1100 AD, the abbess Hildegard wrote about her migraine with aura. And interestingly, I gave a migraine talk, I don't know, 20 years ago here. And in the audience uh, was Dr. Hildreth, who remembers him. He was a big genealogy fan. And he told me that he was a descendant of the Abbess Hildegard. And he had migraines. <laughs> that was just, I, didn't, I didn't plot him in the audience. It was, it was fascinating. In the 1600s, several accounts of headaches appeared in the works of Shakespeare. No doubt Shakespeare himself suffered from migraine. Othello. Uh, and this is a very famous scene in the play Othello. I have a pain upon my forehead here. And Desdemona said, Faith, that's worth watching. Twill away again. Let me but bind it hard within this hour. It will be well. And that's when she bound him with the famous handkerchief that was then later found, a central part of the story, actually. And in many other of his plays, there are mention of headaches. Um, and then. Of course, Thomas Willis of the Circle of Willis fame gave a detailed account of migraine in 1683. And then in the 1790s, Erasmus Darwin, who was the grandfather of the much more famous Charles Darwin, by the way, Charles Darwin suffered from headaches from migraines, uh, Erasmus suggested centrifugation as a cure for headache, which of course <laughs> seems counterproductive. All right, spinning somebody about to have a migraine is probably not a good idea. The first monograph on Migra which is what it used to be called, was in 1873. And then in Germany, Uhlenberg tried injections of ergot extract, and we still use er ergots to treat migraine. And uh, the Mayo Clinic, der Heide, the Heide ergotomy was used in 1945. We still use that very same medicine sometimes. The first tryptin was approved in 1992. The first genetic locus for migraine was described in 1993, when familial hemiplegic migraine was mapped to chromosome 19, we now know you know, scores of such loci. Uh, loci. In, in um, 2010, the FDA approved Botox for chronic migraine. In 2013, the first electroceutical device for migraine was approved by the FDA, the transcranial magnetic stimulation device then made by Serena. The first CGRP monoclonal antibody was approved in May 2018. The first DITAM. In October 2019, the first GPANT, Brojapan to Bravi, was approved in December of 2020, and so on and so forth. So there have been a number of advances of migraine, one upon the other. 
change? Why is this not changing? What did I do? I think this thing had turned the no, this is still on. There's the that this seems to have disconnected from from the computer. Okay. See, So it's a very common problem. Head pain is experienced by 90% of the population at some point in their life. It doesn't mean that they have a chronic headache condition. It doesn't mean it's migraine. But 4% of all visits to all physicians' offices, I'm not saying just primary care doctors. If you look at all visits to all offices across all different types of physicians, 4% of those visits have something to do with headache. 150 million person days of headache is lost in the US every year because of it. One out of 20 persons has some form of chronic daily headache. According to the World Health Organization, migraine is the sixth most common cause of disability worldwide. The one-year prevalence of migraine is 15 to 18%. As you know, it's much more common in women than men by a three-to-one ratio. Just a very quick discussion of the pathophysiology. This could take hours, but I just listed a, a number of genes that are now known you know, there's four different kinds of familial hemiplegic migraine mapped to very distinct loci. I'm not talking about one locus that has, you know, 15,000 different SNRPs on it. I'm talking about actually separate loci in all over the chromosome. And so you can see we're all the way up to migraine number 13 on 10Q25.3. There's a lot of different genetic loci that have been identified and more will be identified. We know that because there's a 90% concordance amongst first degree relatives for migraine. Uh, my old professor at Stanford, Stephen Peruta, also known as the Samsonite professor of neurology because he was always traveling, um, he uh, established that concordance rate for migraine in first degree relatives. So if you ask your migraine patient, anyone else in your family have migraine, very likely to get a yes. Anyway, migraine is a disorder of sensory processing. The migraine brain is an oversensitive brain. Even between migraine attacks, migraineurs often say they're very sensitive to stimuli. They're sensitive to light and noise and ruckus around the house. Um, migraine pain involves activation and sensitization of the trigeminal vascular pathways. The origin of the pain is thought to be in the trigeminal nucleus caudalis. Um, Brace and diencephalic nuclei are activated. The aura, on the other hand, takes place in the cortex, most commonly in the occipital cortex. And that phenomenon is due to cortical spreading depression of layout, which is an electrical, electrochemical phenomenon that's been well known for many years, first, first discovered by layout in the optic cup preparation of the rabbit. Anyway, many different neurotransmitter systems are involved. Serotonergic system, of course, we know uh, because we use triptans to treat it. The triptans work at the 5-hydroxytryptamine 1B and 1D receptors. The ditans work at 5-HT, the 1F receptors, so differently. The CGRP monoclonal antibodies work on a different uh, neurotransmitter system altogether, the calcitonin gene-related peptidergic system. Uh, so the monoclonal antibodies for GRP act there. The GPANs are small molecule CGRP receptor antagonists. Uh, Mantine is a glutamatergic agent. It's used off-label sometimes to treat migraines and is approved to treat Alzheimer's disease, of all things. And then in the research stage are the Glurats. So we have the GPEDs, now we have the Glurats. They work at the metabotropic 
uh, glutamate receptor subtype 5. Those are in the future, not too far, though, in the future. So who's this fellow? Well, he had the onset of his headaches in the mid-20s. He wrote about a violent headache lasting two days that struck him after the young lady that he fancied, fancied spurred him at a society ball. After the death of his mother, he suffered headaches for five weeks. This shows that emotional triggers can set off headaches. It's not just physiologic triggers. The death of his 34-year-old wife triggered another lengthy bout of headaches. Um, and then, after being with his married paramour, scandal, scandal back then, Mrs. Causeway, he suffered a six-day headache um, after he parted from her. And then at age 47, shortly after he assumed duties as Secretary of State, he had a one-month-long spate of headaches. And during the winter of 1790, he suffered headaches associated with aversion to daylight. He actually worked by candlelight at night because he couldn't stand the brightness of the sun. And while he was president, he wrote to one of his granddaughters just like this. I mentioned in my letter last week that I was under an attack of periodical headaches. This is the 10th day. It's been very moderate, and yesterday it did not last more than three hours. So who is this fellow? Thomas Jefferson. Thomas Jefferson, yes. And I hope by the conclusion of our discussion today, you'll agree with me that the diagnosis in Thomas Jefferson was migraines. And if you were to have him magically appear in your office today or tomorrow, you would have a way to treat his migraines. Back then, they didn't have so many treatments. A lot of famous people have migraine. There's a whole long list here of various people. There are many, many others. Um, so Gwyneth uh, Paltrow gets migraines. Ben Affleck gets migraines, various actors. Uh, all these various famous people here. There seems to be a predilection for um, writers, William Shakespeare and Cervantes, both suffering from them. Anyway, to, class, to diagnose headache, you have to be familiar with the classification scheme. Patients are allowed to have more than one kind of a headache. So some patients have migraine and tension headache. Some patients may have migraine and cluster headache. That's a tough combination to work out. The classification scheme, of course, was devised by an international panel of headache experts, like all these different schemes are across medicine. And it's every few years, they're constantly evolving it. We're up to the um, International Classification of Headache Disorders three at this point. And if you look at that classification, there are um, 14 major categories of headache and head pain. It also includes neuralgias in there. You can see at the top of the list under, my, under primary headaches um, is migraine. And then there are secondary headaches that are caused by other things. So even if you just look at migraine, or sorry, even if you um, even if you just look at migraine here, the major subheadings, there's a bunch of different subheadings for migraine, and then the subheadings have sub-subheadings, so you can classify migraine ever more finely. Um, and these are real uh, classifications with real importance because some types of migraine have to be treated in a different way than others. Just yesterday, I had a new patient that came to see me, actually a medical professional, who I diagnosed with basilar migraine and who had just a few weeks ago presented to the emergency room with symptoms that were interpreted as stroke and she was actually treated with intravenous connectoplase and admitted as if she had had a stroke. But it wasn't a stroke, it was a basilar migraine. It's okay, 
a certain percentage of people that are treated with tenecdomyces um, do end up having migraine rather than stroke. If you don't do that, you're under-treating probably overall. Uh, no harm, no foul there. But if you have basilar migraine, you can't use triptans and you can't use ergots. So that's important to know because those could then trigger migraines. Uh, could then trigger strokes, so real strokes. So you have to classify correctly. And, and of course, under the classification scheme, there's all kinds of uh, unusual headaches or, or headaches that could be mystifying or misleading. I just put here a, a little bestiary of, of some of these. Um, so ice cream headaches, they're real things. They're, they're, they're classified as ICHD 3, uh, 4.5.2. So that's an ice cream headache. That happens because you're stimulating, stimulating this phenopalatine ganglion with cold. Anyway, so to, to, to diagnose migraine, according to the classification scheme, you have to have at least five attacks that fulfill this um, Chinese menu type of scheme. The headache has to last at least four to 72 hours, but of course migraines can last for weeks in some instances. And they have to have at least two of the following, a unilateral location, pulsating quality, moderate or severe intensity, aggravation by routine physical activity. And during the headache, they have to have at least one of the following, nausea and or vomiting, uh, photophobia and or phonophobia. And then finally, this is the, this is the one that gets you, not better accounted for by everything else that's in the huge classification scheme that includes hundreds of different kinds of headache and head pain. So there are many more kinds of headache and head pain than there are abdominal pain, right? You think about the, the, the differential diagnosis of abdominal pain, you think that's pretty big, but that's nothing compared to the differential diagnosis of head and head, headache and head pain because there's so many more structures there that can cause pain, and there are lots of pain endings in the face and head. Migraine with aura is similar to what I just went through, except there are aura symptoms that are reversible, generally speaking. The most common being visual auras because that part of the cortex, the, the chemical and cytoarchitectonic characteristics of that part of the cortex is more prone to the spreading depression of the owl. But you can also have somatosensory symptoms, numbness. Uh, you can have aphasic migraines where you can't speak. You can have brainstem migraines like the brainstem aura that occurred to this particular patient I told you about where they became vertiginous, <coughs> bilateral numbness, etc. And you can see what the characteristics required there are. These are these these, these classifications, if you follow them strictly, are the kinds of things that you would use in clinical trials. But of course, they loosen up in, in, in real life. So this is migraine with brainstem aura. Uh, and so uh, you, the vertigo is often a very prominent part. This patient I saw had vertigo, ataxia, um, somatosensory loss bilaterally in the face, the arms, the legs, all at once. Okay, and then we get to the category of chronic migraine, chronic migraine that occurs for 15 or more days per month, or three months or more in the absence of medication overuse. This is where we get into the most trouble because we have patients, you know, patients that have one or two migraines a year, neurologists don't see those patients. Primary care doctors see them. They may or may not treat them with anything specific. They may offer reassurance. They may give them a trip then or something they can use in the rare eventuality of a headache. But what we see as neurologists are the more difficult patients, the chronic migraineurs, 
usually that have tried several medicines before they get to us. Hopefully, tried several. <laughs> and these are the criteria for that. Up to 75% of migraineurs have frequent low-grade headaches in between their more intense uh, superimposed migraine attacks. So the phases of a migraine, there's a prodrome. So many patients with migraine will tell you they'll know days in advance that they're going to get a migraine. They feel um, a loss of appetite, anorexia. They feel un uneasy. They may have GI symptoms, diarrhea, constipation. Not all patients with migraine have the prodrome, but many will tell you they have a, uh, an inkling that something's about to happen. Then there's up to 15% of migraine attacks are associated with an aura. So most of them aren't. And even in a given individual, a given individual may have mostly migraine without aura, but every so often they'll have a migraine with aura. So it's, they can vary even within an individual what type of migraine attack they have. And the auras, as I've described, are um, typically sensory auras, but can be motor or language auras. And then the headache. And then afterwards, many pa patients have a postdrome where they either feel really good uh, because their headache is gone, or they feel drained. So it can be a dysphoric or euphoric postdrome. Okay, so like I said, prodrome can have any of these features. Uh, or it can precede the headache or continue through the headache. And it's triphasic. This is very important to understand because this corresponds to the, what happens electrochemically during the spreading depression at layout. Uh, there's a positive neurologic phenomena followed by a negative phenomena, then followed by recovery to um, the resting state. So positive phenomena, sparkly lights, zigzags, colors, rainbows, explosions, lightning bolts, fireworks, they use all these different terms, uh, little fireflies, so they're positive visual phenomena typically. Then they may have scotomata that are dark, that's a negative phenomena, and then they recover uh, to normal. And uh, they can have even more complicated visual symptoms. For example, Lewis Carroll, who wrote Alice in Wonderland, um, he was a mathematician at Cambridge or Oxford, I forget which one, but anyway, he wrote children's stories at the time. He suffered from migraines, and guess what? He had he had a very specific type of visual aura, aura, macropsia and micropsia, which is when they look out in the middle of a migraine, everything looks really big, everything looks really small. And I've had a number of patients that report this type of visual aura. Guess, guess what he put in his stories? Alice getting really big and Alice getting really small, directly out of his migraines. That's where that came from. All right, and uh, like it says here, sometimes the headache can be accompanied by certain persistent prodromal or, or, or oral symptoms. And they're usually uh, fairly severe. All right, there's a, uh, another category of a headache that we have to know about whenever we talk about migraine, and that is headaches attributed to substances or their withdrawal. And in particular, we look at medication overuse headaches because a lot of patients with migraine end up being prescribed symptomatic medications that are overused. If you overuse a symptomatic medication, those are not meant for prevention. It can lead to medication overuse headache. And now that you have two different headache top types to deal with that have to be dealt with differently, not only that, but a lot of medication overuse sufferers um, have a blunted response to migraine prophylactic agents, which makes it your task doubly difficult. 
right? You're, you're trying to put them on a pro prophylactic agent so they don't have to use as much symptomatic agent, but because they're using too many symptomatic agent medications, the prophylactic response is blunted. You get into that vicious circle. Um, so, that's a, as I've said, it may cause patients to become resistant to prophylactic medicines, and medication overuse headache can occur with any class of medicine. It can happen with triptans. There have been articles of this with sumatriptan. It can happen with caffeine. There are people who say, if I don't have my morning cup of coffee or Coca-Cola or whatever, in the, then I'm likely to get a headache. So they're, they're using that um, every day. So that brings us to this quote from Sir William Osler himself. One of the first duties of the physician is to educate the, medicine, the masses not to take medicine. Seems like an odd thing to say, but what he meant is you got to tell them to use them correctly. You can't just willy-nilly take medicines anytime you feel like for anything at all in any rational or irrational way. So when you're diagnosing a proper history and physical uh, examination is worth more than all the imaging, and lab array, imaging studies and laboratory um, tests that you can imagine. The history is key in diagnosing headache. Patient-physician rapport is necessary. You have to ask about the features of the headache, a neurologic and systemic review of systems, the past medical history, particularly what other medicines or substances they're using or have used, family history, psychosocial factors. Uh, so, you know, one of the things I might ask at the beginning is how many different kinds of headache do you think you have? And if the patient answers 10, you're in trouble. Um, Sometimes it turns out that they're making very fine distinctions that don't matter, and all 10 different kinds of headache are really all just migraine. Where did the headaches start? What, uh, how often do they occur? How long do they last? Where are they on the head? Where do they start and move to? Do they evolve and move? Provoking factors. Um, what, what, what may be a trigger? And then aggravating factors. Once you have the headache, what makes it even worse? What makes it better? Uh, what kind of pain is it? How much pain is there? What other symptoms are there? Other associated neurologic symptoms? What were the prior diagnoses and prior treatments? And then the patient's concerns. It's very important because sometimes patients come to see you with a headache because in the back of their mind, they're thinking of Aunt Matilda who just died of a brain tumor. And if you can reassure them on that account, they may not even need all that much in the way of, of treatment as far as pain management is concerned. And if you don't address this, they're going to keep having headaches, <laughs> right? No matter what else you do. So then you do your examination, a thorough neurologic exam, especially a detailed cranial nerve exam, because so many types of headaches and neuralgias involve other cranial, uh, involve the cranial nerves. Here are the red flags. So what makes you worried that what you're dealing with may not be just a migraine, it may be something more dangerous. This is one of our big duties as, as healthcare providers is distinguishing between dangerous headaches and headaches that are annoying, but not likely to be deadly. So thunderclap onset. All ER doctors are taught, if the patient says these words, get worried. This is the worst headache of my life. So when the patients say that, uh, um, you know, the, the, uh, the shotgun is fired off, the blunderbuss is is deployed. All the tests come out. Um, a new headache that patients who don't have headaches and suddenly develop headaches, or a significant change in the characteristics of the headaches, a new kind of headache. 
if it progressively intensifies over days to months, that's a warning sign. So I give the story of a relative of mine's um, child who develops headaches at a time in his life when headaches can develop and was seen by the pediatrician over and over again, and this was tried and that was tried. And it kept getting worse, it kept getting worse, it wasn't getting better, it was steadily worsening. Finally, they went out of town, the family went out of town, he had a pretty bad <laughs> headache. They went to an emergency room out of town who didn't know this kid at all. They got a picture finally, they got an image, and it turned out to be medulloblastoma. It wasn't migraine. So progressive intensification, worrisome. Chills, fever, shakes, nexiness, of course, meningismus, and all of these things, alteration of consciousness, focal neurologic symptoms and signs. Uh, tender temporal arteries may mean uh, temporal arteritis, obviously, cognitive impairment. <laughs> the presence of any of these red flag symptoms or signs should alert, the, should alert the primary care provider to consider referring the patient for specialty consultation or maybe obtaining the diagnostic study that has been put off. Most of the time, um, imaging studies and laboratory studies are not absolutely necessary, but like I said, such tests themselves may be a therapeutic benefit if the patient is worried about what the headaches portend. Do I have an aneurysm? It's, it's those kinds of questions. And you may think you're saving the system money by not ordering an MRI today on this particular patient, but that patient's gonna to go to some other healthcare provider down the line, and eventually they're gonna get an MRI. So I'm not sure um, that all the money saving schema out there promulgated by insurance companies uh, and others to prevent access to imaging studies really do all that much good. <laughs> There are a whole bunch of other, there are a whole bunch of different testing, um, test choices depending on the situation. Okay, quick path to diagnosis is what I use in real life. So, very important to me is when did these headaches begin? There aren't very many kinds of primary headache that begin in childhood and continue all the way through adulthood. Okay, so if they tell me that they started having headaches in childhood or adolescence, that's a big clue that this could be migraine. If they're of debilitating intensity, that's also a clue that they could be migraine because they're usually severe enough to prevent people from actually continuing to function. Family history, like I said, there's a 90% concordance in first degree relatives. The migraine features, especially visual auras. If I hear the typical visual auras, the scintillating photopsias, the tetopsias with the fortification spectra, those kinds of things, those. Uh, don't happen with very many other kinds of conditions. So that can be a big clue. Um, duration, migraines don't just last seconds. They don't just last minutes. They last hours to days or even weeks. And the typical triggers. Um, this last one, osmophobia, a lot of migraine specialists, migraine men, patients said that this is fairly not quite pathognomonic, but close for migraine. So if they have a lot of migraineurs will tell you they're very sensitive to odors. They can't even go into an elevator after a person who had been in it before who had been wearing perfume. I'm not even saying together with them, but afterwards. 
Some people actually live outside of town just so they don't have to smell perfumes. I've had people tell me they've moved out of town for that reason. Okay, so principles of treatment. Here are some quotes. Uh, those two attributed to Hippocrates. The first one, maybe not. Some people say it's Ulster. Some people say it was mid 15th century. Anyway, cure sometimes, treat often, comfort always. That's a very good thing to keep in mind when you're dealing with headache patients. And then the second one is definitely Hippocrates. It is more important to know what sort of person has a disease than what sort of disease a person has. I mean, you know, take that with a grain of salt, obviously, but that's very important. When you're dealing with migraine, you can't just ask about the disease, the symptoms themselves. What is the patient like? What are their fears? What are their concerns? What kind of lifestyle do they lead? Are they under super amounts of stress? Because with, without dealing with the stress and psychological components, you may not be able to get over the migraine. So remember to use non-prescription treatments too. It doesn't have to always be a prescription. Most migraineurs need symptomatic treatment. Many need prophylactic treatment, but beware of prescription medication overuse headaches. Uh, persistence is ne necessary. Encouragement is important, and you have to tailor the treatment to the individual and his or her comorbidities. So uh, when I talk to a migraine patient, I tell them, hey, the first thing we try may not work. The second thing we try may not work. The third thing we try may not work. But we have to be persistent, and we have to try different things because not every migraine patient is the same. Not every migraine patient responds to a triptan, but they may respond to, to a calcitonin gene-related polypeptide um, receptor antagonist. Or they may respond to an electroceutical. Okay? Eliminate and control provoking factors. Smoking. My god, that's a horrible one. I just talked about smell. Smoking. As long as a migrainer continues to smoke, your likelihood of success in controlling the migraine is very low. Food triggers, irregular sleep, that's very important. Some people with migraine may have a coexisting sleep disorder. That has to be treated. Um, hormonal factors, birth control pills. Uh, this migraine patient I told you about that ended up getting tonight to place, uh, treated as a stroke, had, had recently changed birth control, different hormone. And she had to go off the hormone, obviously. This is one way of controlling smoking. Are you sure this is the only way the nicotine patch will work? Okay, so non-pharmacologic approaches, psychological therapies, biofeedback, self-hypnosis, cognitive behavioral therapy can help, meditation. So there are non-pharmacologic uh, approaches to use, local external therapies. There are all kinds of different face masks out there for sale that you can put in the freezer and cool down, uh, different kinds of pillows, massage, physical therapy, acupuncture. I actually refer many of my patients to one very specific acupuncturist in the valley who's very skilled in treating migraine with acupuncture. Um, named. Named, I'll tell you after. I don't want to advertise for anybody in the open field here, but I'll tell you after. <laughs> um, we should be advertising each other, I guess. Uh, electronic devices, there are a number of those we'll talk about. So, almost every patient requires symptomatic therapy to treat the attacks. If the migraines are particularly frequent, chronic, or debilitating, then prophylaxis may be considered. And it depends on the patient. 
So in children, generally, children's migraines are briefer in duration than in adults. They don't have a ton of responsibilities. They bounce back very quickly. So you don't need prophylaxis in children as urgently as you might in adults. An air traffic controller who has one debilitating migraine a month, that's one too many. A retired little old lady who has very few responsibilities, if any, she may be able to put up with a few migraines a month without having prophylaxis. Depends on the patient and what's going on with them. A headache diary can be very useful for establishing what the actual frequency of the headaches is. Patients often underestimate or overestimate their headaches. And so a diary can be uh, helpful. There are a number of apps now. Um, nobody carries around a little notebook and paper and pencil anymore. Well, I shouldn't say that. Some older folks might. But there are apps. On the Mac, the best one, or the most common one that I meant is High Headache. Uh, on Androids or Samsung or those kinds of things, the Migraine Buddy is the one. And everybody has their cell phone all the time, so it's easy for them to punch in their headaches on their cell phone with those, with those apps. Um, it, can, it can also be very helpful to find out what the triggers are because patients may not realize that until it's written down, every time I have chocolate, I get a headache. Or every time I have red wine, I get a headache. That was the patient I just saw yesterday that had the bathroom migraine. She doesn't drink red wine because gets a headache every time. All right, so here are the FDA indicated. This means they're FDA approved and actually have an FDA designated indication for treating migraines. So the combination of acetaminophen, aspirin, and caffeine actually has the indication. There are many things that are indicated for pain in general, like acetaminophen alone, but not for migraine specifically. But if you use it in that combination, excedrin migraine formula, for instance, that is indicated. Ergotamine tartrate in various forms. A combination of ergotamine tartrate and caffeine, caffergon. Um, dihydroergotamine mesylate in various forms. So we have a number of examples of that, the newest one being Tudessa, which was just approved not that long ago. Um, diclofenac potassium, which is Cambia. Most NSAIDs do not have a specific indication for migraine. They're indicated for pain control. But if you ask, are there any NSAIDs that are actually specifically FDA indicated for migraine, it's just one, and that's Cambia diclofenac potassium powder. And then there's a bunch of triptans, uh, as you can see, in various forms, nasal spray, subcutaneous, oral. Um, then we have the, um, the, the uh, G-Pants, Ubro-Japant, Remin-Japant, uh, and there's another one that's prophylactic but not symptomatic, Atojapant, we'll get to that in a second. There's the one example of a ditan so far that acts on the 5-HT1F subreceptor, Lasmodactin, Rabo. There are a bunch of devices here that are approved for symptomatic use and work in different ways. Off-label, there's a bunch of those, okay, right? Obviously, opioids, they're for pain control, not specific for migraine, but we use them all the time. One that was overused a number of years ago was the butorphanol nasal spray, Stadol. That caused a lot of medication overuse. Um, I don't see that so much anymore. Um, most of the NSAIDs are not specific for migraine, but can be used and are. Like Toradol is used in urgent care and the ER all the time to treat migraine. It's usually in a cocktail, you know, Toradol, 
um, compazine or phenergan, diphenhydramine altogether. Uh, Orville, you'll hear a little bit about that for the prevention of menstrual migraine if we get to that. Um, Diclofenac in other forms like Zipsort was is used. Okay, what about preventive treatments? There's a bunch that are indicated. Again, this is a FDA approved and specifically have been approved by the FDA for use in migraine and been tested. So two different beta blockers, propranolol and tinolol. All the other ones can be used, but they don't have a specific FDA indication. Not to say that a tenolol uh, wouldn't be useful or metoprolol. Methosergide malleate was one of the very first prophylactic agents ever used to treat migraine. That's censored, but it's no longer manufactured. That's why I put it in the brackets. I remember prescribing that years and years ago, so I'm dating myself. Um, that, was, that, that was approved even before the beta blockers. You can imagine that. Uh, Valparate, Depico, Topiramate, those are the two anticonvulsants that actually have the indication. All the other ones don't. So I see all kinds of patients being prescribed gabapentin for migraine prevention on the basis of what evidence. But of course, gabapentin is prescribed for everything. And if you get a furry tongue, gabapentin. <laughs> so, and, and I can laugh because I was, again, I'm dating myself, I was one of the investigators, believe it or not, when it was being developed for epilepsy. Holy smokes, I must be ancient. <laughs> anyway, there's a bunch of, of monoclonal, uh, custom-gene-related polypeptide monoclonal antibodies, right? Renamab, what's the name of it? Feminizumab, HOV, galvanizumab, legality, eptinizumab, biapti, which is given IV. Um, Remigipant, Nurtec, which is a GPENT, it's a small molecule antagonist at the CGRP receptor, uh, was approved by the FDA as a prophylactic treatment in addition to being approved as a symptomatic treatment. So you can use it either way or both ways at once. Uh, Dojapan, which is Culetta, was approved by the FDA. It's one of the newer ones. That's a simple one to use. It's just one pill once a day. Prophylactic, CGRP, receptor, small molecule antagonist. And then a bunch of, well, three, three of the different electroceuticals. And then there's a bunch of non-indicated, so-called off-label prophylactic treatments. We all use these um, selective serotonin reuptake inhibitors, um, SNRIs, Oxymalta. But if you're going to use an antidepressant, you're probably better off using a tricyclic antidepressant because studies were published and done, done and published that show that TCAs work better than SSRIs for migraine prophylaxis. They're not approved for that purpose, for the specifically indicated, but we very commonly use them. And importantly, a lot of insurers will tell you, you have to try a TCA, a beta blocker, and an anticonvulsant before they'll allow you to prescribe one of the more modern prophylactics like a CGRP monoclonal antibody or a GPEN. They're, they're getting better about this but there are still insurers out there that tell you to use a non-indicated medication. It's not indicated. Before they'll approve a well-tested, specifically FDA-indicated medicine for that purpose. And they talk out of both sides of your mouth, of their mouth. 
Because sometimes when you ask them to use something else off-label, they'll say, no, that's off-label. Well, okay. <laughs> uh, and there are a bunch of others. You can see ACE inhibitors, angiotensin receptor blockers have been tried. There, there are papers, all kinds of papers, small papers, on all these different things. Um, gabapentin has been tried. Menantine. Ciproheptidine, that's an old one. You know how old ciproheptidine is, periactin? That one was actually, there was actually a clinical trial of ciproheptidine in pregnant women. No one would ever dream of doing a clinical trial in pregnant women nowadays, right? You're not allowed to be in clinical trials of any kind if you're pregnant or even possibly can get pregnant. So that one sometimes may be something that I will prescribe to pregnant women with migraine. So here are symptomatic treatments. In order of my preference, if cost were not a factor, and if insurance companies would let me do it. Okay? So GPEDs, top of my list. Why are GPEDs top of my list? They're very safe, well-tolerated, and effective. So if I, could, if I could have my wish and just prescribe without reference to these hurdles, GPEDs. Dytin, it's the one Dytin, Lasvodytin, Rabo, but that one has this, well, the discouraging characteristic of being a controlled substance at only level five, but even so. Um, triptans, ergots, electroceutical devices, hand states, and so on. Avoid, avoid if you can, mixed barbiturate compounds. These are still used all the time. They're not specifically indicated. Many countries in Europe don't even allow these medicines, Fioracet and Fioranol, opioids, except for migraine and pregnancy. So this, the GPADs are small molecule antagonists of the calcitonin-gene-related polypeptide receptor. They're safe to use in patients with stable cardiovascular or cerebrovascular disease, or in those with hemiplegic or basal migraine. Very different than triptans. You can't use triptans in those situations. You can't use ergots in those situations. So one of the huge advantages of GPEDs is you can use them in patients who have these risks, as long as they're stable. I mean, would you prescribe them to somebody in the midst of unstable angina? No, but if they've had, if they had an MI 10 years ago and nothing since, and if it's stable, you can prescribe it. So you couldn't prescribe a triptan. Proven efficacy, not only for pain freedom, but also for freedom from major bothersome symptom and return to normal function. So in the old days, the primary endpoint in the, in the symptomatic migraine clinical trials was pain relief, which means going from a level four headache, say, to a level two headache. So it got better, didn't completely go away. That was the primary endpoint years ago in the tryptan trials, for example. Then we evolved to pain freedom, meaning no pain at all. And the most common endpoint, even now, primary endpoint for symptomatic therapy is pain freedom at two hours. And then we went further than that. We started looking at secondary endpoints like freedom from major bothersome symptom, which is actually a primary co-primary endpoint for some of the clinical trials now. Meaning it doesn't only get rid of the headache, it gets rid of the photophobia, the phonophobia, the nausea, etc. And then this is my favorite, return to normal function. Now we measure this too. Can the treatment actually get you back to being able to work, being able to interact with your family? Because you can imagine, if you just looked at pain relief, you can get pain relief if you throw enough morphine on somebody. 
Is that going to do them any good? They're not going to be able to go back to work. They, they can't function. They're snowed. So if you snow enough, yeah, you can get rid of the pain. But what you really want is the ability to return to normal function. And in the clinical trials of the GPATs, that was measured and proven to be the case, that these GPATs could get people back to normal function. The medicine did not interfere with function. And fast onset of action, they work very quickly in, for the most part. They're not prone to medication overuse headache. And these are the two choices we have presently. Rojapant, where you have two different doses that you can use, oral tablets. Remijapant is an orally dissolving tablet right on the tongue. Um, this one also has the characteristic of being approved for prophylactic use. There's another one under development, Zavajapant, which is an, going to be a nasal spray. They're safe and very well tolerated, as I've said. Uh, other agents, the triptans, we've had long experience with them, obviously, um, dating back um, to the 1990s. Um, the, these are the triptans down here. They work on the 5-HT1B1B receptor. The more modern version of uh, a serotonergic agent is lasmodidine. That one's somewhat safer than triptans. You can uh, use it in patients that have um, cardiovascular risk factors, but it's DA Schedule 5. Sumatriptan formulations, many different kinds, oral, nasal spray, injectable. At one time, there was a patch, which was Zafuity, which was withdrawn. There's an inhalable powder on Zentra Exhale, which can help some patients. There are fixed dose combinations with Naprosyn, that's Trexamet, all sorts of variations on a thing that, but triptans have many contraindications. Ischemic heart disease, transmetals angina, previous strokes, vascular migraine, hemiplegic migraine, poorly controlled hypertension, blah, blah, on and on and on. Um, so here are the different um, versions of, of um, ergotamines. Uh, a little mention of some pathomimetics. We used to have midrin that's no longer available, but ergotamine derivatives, ergamar, cafergot, dihydroergotamine mesylate comes in many forms. There's migranol, which is in a glass ampule that you have to break open and then assemble with this inhaler device, and yet it's a big box like this. Can you imagine a migraineur carrying one of these around? And then even more so, can you imagine them in the middle of a migraine going through that whole procedure of breaking a glass ampule, assembling it into a device, when in the middle of a migraine, they can barely function. They really don't want to deal with that. I had migraine nurse complain to me about Treximet because it came in a desiccant package, shaped like a hockey puck. It was childproof. You had to turn it a certain way. That's all you had to do, turn this little disc a certain way. They couldn't deal with it. <laughs> so it has to be easy to access. Trudess is a little bit better. It's all in one kind of easy to access device, but still kind of bulky. All right, NSAIDs, like I said, Cambia, which is diclofenac potassium powder, is approved for the acute treatment. Uh, there's another one, Sprix, which is not specifically indicated, but can be used. It's nice, that's another nasal spray, um, the Toralac from uh, um, And this is one that many people haven't heard of. Then there are the electroceutical devices, the Cephaly devices. I must have 60-some patients who use this. Uh, it's now not even necessary to prescribe this. You don't even have a, uh, you don't have to have a prescription for it. It used to be that you did. It's been over the counter now for the last year and a half or so. Um, it's a transcranial um, electro, um, transcranial electrostimulatory device that works on the trigeminal nerve. And it comes in three different models, but as far as symptomatic, there's the cephaly dual, 
which does both symptomatic and prophylactic treatment, cephaly acute, which only treats the attacks. So I never prescribe the acute. I just prescribe the dual because you can do both things. Um, there's the uh, savvy device, usually different name for a device that's been around a while, the spring TMS from Eumura. These are single one millisecond pulses of magnetic stimulation delivered to the occipital lobe at the time of the visual aura when it first starts. Um, it's a little bit bulky, as you can see. Um, you get three pulses at the onset of pain, then three more pulses 15 minutes later and 15 minutes later after that, if necessary. But there are certain things you can't use it with. If you have aneurysm clips in your head, if you have cochlear implants, if you have shunts, you can't use it. If anybody got shot, you can't use it. I mean, there's a lot of things you have to be worried about. Metal anywhere, basically. Uh, then there's the gamma core sapphire, which is a which is a vagal nerve stimulator. You stimulate the vagus nerve externally with this device. This is approved not just for migraine, but also for cluster headache. But there are different kinds of series of pulses for the two different conditions. And not only is it useful for symptomatic treatment, it can also be used prophylactically, as we'll talk about. Uh, fairly, you know, you can see the efficacy there. Uh, and then finally, the most recent one, this was approved not very long ago. It's a combined trigeminal and occipital nerve stimulator. I don't know if you can see this little nose piece down here. The light may be too high. It looks pretty uh, space age. Um, and that does, uh, th does some good as well. So what about prophylaxis? Prophylaxis should be considered in adults with one or two with more than one or two debilitating migraines per month. So it doesn't have to be that many if they're de super debilitating. And you start prophylactic therapy with the safest, simplest things first, and you choose your prophylactic therapy based on patient characteristics, as I've already described, but also on comorbidities. There are a number of comorbid conditions that are common with migraine. Epilepsy. In fact, epilepsy and migraine occur together so often that neurologists have a pet name for that. We call it migralepsy. It's not an official name, but it happens very commonly. And obviously, if somebody has migralepsy, an anticonvulsant would be a good choice of prophylactic therapy. Tapiramate and valparate are both approved to treat migraine and both approved to treat epilepsy. So good choice there. But nine essential tremor, very common. So what would you use there? Propranolol, a beta blocker, because it can treat both conditions. And so on and so forth. First-line prophylactic choices, there are non-prescription um, uh, agents like just high-dose riboflavin. And many of you are familiar with this from my um, list of my little handout about migraine pathway, which is going to be appended to this talk, I understand. Um, Tapirmate, beta blockers, tricyclic antidepressants, even though they're not specifically indicated here, so I'm not going to go through all the dosing. But you can see there are a lot of choices. This is the important point here. Prophylactic agents need to be used at an adequate dose for an adequate period of time before judging efficacy. I've had patients come to me and say, oh, my doctor prescribed me for Prenalon. OK, well, how long did you take it? Oh, I took a couple of pills. It didn't work. Well, they never had it explained to them that the point is prevention and that it isn't something you take just to treat that immediate headache, or they misunderstood. So they have to use something long enough to give it a chance to work and at an adequate dose. And they also have to understand that prophylactic agents aren't perfect. They're never going to get to zero. Well, they might, but you shouldn't put that expectation in their mind. Even a 50% reduction in headache frequency is a pretty good result. And if the first thing you try doesn't work, then you have to try another one. Okay? 
if the first line agents I mentioned are unsuccessful, then you can go on to one of these other ones. In in real life, if if well in real life, if in uh, fairyland, if I didn't have to worry about insurers and expense and so on and so forth, you might skip all those first line agents and go straight to something that works really well, like a CGRP monoclonal antibody or a GPAT, right, right off the bat. And some patients may be, may be able to do that. Uh, I'm not going to go through all the different trials for tapiramate and so on, but here are some GPATs that you are starting to get familiar with. Culipta is a preventative. It's a tojapan. We use the three different doses. Nurtec is also a prophylactic when used every other day. It can reduce the, the culipta, can reduce um, mean monthly headache days by 54%. It works very quickly, even within one week. This is very different, by the way, from what happens with tapiramate. Or even with Botox. With Botox, I tell patients, you have to try it twice before you know if it's really going to work or not. Well, that's six months. That's a long time to really know if your prophylactic agent isn't going to work. The GPANs, you can find out pretty fast. So that's a huge advantage. And there are trials that show that these are safe even over extended periods of time. And more importantly, they continue to work. Okay, Botox, you know, approved in 2010. It's been around a while. I do a lot of these. It works well. But it does involve 31 injections every 12 weeks. Some patients just can't do that. All right, and then the monoclonal antibodies. As you can see there, we have many choices. Um, what about levels of ev evidence for prophylactic treatment? You know about level A, B evidence, and so on. So level A, you see all the ones that are specifically indicated there. Probotriptan has a little star. You can use it for short-term prophylaxis of menstrual migraine. It's not meant at all. But look where gabapentin is, okay? I don't know how many times I see patients on this for migraine. It's level U. Right there with warfarin for my intuition. <laughs> okay? All right. Enough said. How about if we compare some of these agents, just looking at mean monthly migraine days is a common way of looking at efficacy of prophylaxis. How many migraine days less they have per month? And there's this is subtracting off the placebo response. So you can see the monoclonal antibodies rated for prophylaxis of episodic migraine and for chronic migraine. Some of these are not approved for chronic migraine, okay? So, um, or, the, or the figures aren't there because they were the, the trials were done before we distinguished between episodic and chronic. So you can see that, you know, they range from anywhere from um, Neurotech is less than one uh, migraine day a month less to a Tojipat, which is approaching two, uh, to um, Frevenizumab, which is approaching three fewer migraine days per month. So it's different for these different agents when you subtract out placebo. And some of the older ones you can see there too, in, by comparison, right? Propranolol uh, has some efficacy. All right, and then the electroceuticals, I'll go through this real quick because I know we're up against the hour here, but there are a bunch of these. Uh, many patients like the idea of this kind of treatment because it doesn't involve administering a system, a systemic medicine with side effects that can occur systemically. Uh, so we talked about cephaly, we talked about SAVI. These are both also approved for prophylaxis. So they can be used both symptomatically and prophylactically. The, the pulse sequences are different for those two purposes. 
uh, comparing the lentosunicles, you can see some of them have been uh, approved for acute migraine. All of them have been approved for acute migraine. Most of them have been approved for migraine prevention, except the Nerivio migra. The Nerivio migra is um, something you wear on your arm. It's a, it's a band, and it's controlled from your cell phone, and it's approved down to the age of 12, which is nice. Um, so that one is a di yet a different approach. And you can see the efficacy. Uh, so if you look at two-hour pain freedom, this is the one that really counts in many ways. This is versus placebo, or not placebo, versus sham device. Okay, versus sham device. You can see how they, they work. And then migraine prevention down below. All right? There are some special topics which um, I will stop and not talk about right now because we're out of time. But uh, if you want to talk to me later about how do you deal with status migranosis, how do you deal with menstrual migraine, how do you deal with migraine during pregnancy, how do you deal with migraine in children, those are other topics that one can go into. And now I will stop and take questions. I know that the online audience can have chat questions. I have a question. Um, age of onset. So say if you had somebody who was 35 or 40 who came in and seemed to be new onset migraine, would that be an indication for imaging? Um, good question. So the question is, what if somebody has a new headache that only appeared in their 30s or 40s? It's new. They never had headaches before. Uh, I would image that patient because they, because most migraineurs probably deserve at least one imaging study during the course of their migraine journey. But, the, you know, you can have migraine start at 35. You can have migraine start at 60. I've diagnosed that too. Um, but if it's new in that age range, probably a good idea to answer. Questions? Any chats? Any coming in? Yes? You mentioned um, avoiding mixed compounds for treatment. Mixed barbiturate compounds. Okay. I think that we use one here in the hospital, Fiorset. Yeah, Fiorset and Fiornal. Yeah, those are medicines that have been around a long time, right? They're, they're um, a combination of butalbital aspirin, uh, or acetaminophen. Fioracet is acetaminophen, fioranol is aspirin, and then caffeine. So they have those three ingredients in them. Um, they, they, those were agents that were used when there was no, there were none of the more specific, more properly tested agents. They're very old medicines. In fact, in several European countries, they're not even legal. The reason I don't like them, and a lot of neurologists don't like them, is because they're very prone to medication overuse. Patients get hooked on them. They're like opioids in that regard, right? Butalbital is a barbiturate, in essence. So, yeah. But using them in the short term. Using them short term, you know, you can do that. Explain carefully to patients no symptomatic agents should be used more often than three days a week. And even, you know, symptomatic GPENs really shouldn't be. Um, and triptan certainly. So pure and all pure set, I don't like them. <laughs> I try to get patients off them. It's not always possible to do that easily when they've been using them for many years. One of my greatest saves, I'll remember this always, uh, I had a patient who was in his late 80s or approaching 90. He'd been using Percocet every day to treat his headaches and came to see me and I said, no, this is not what we're going to do. 
And over time, you can't just do it like this, I managed to get him off the Percocet and he stopped having headaches of any kind, not even the original headache that caused him to use the Percocet in the first place decades prior. Been using this stuff for, for years, decades. Got him off of it, no headache. So yeah, it's always worth trying to get them off these nasty medicines, right? So William Osler said, one of the first duties of physicians is to educate the masses not to take medicine. <laughs> A couple questions about the electroceuticals. Yes. Which of them require a prescription? All of them except cephalopine. Okay, so that one used to, but no longer. Right. And then in your experience, how well covered are they by insurance or are people generally paying out of pocket for them? So very good question. How's the payment structure for these? Uh, many of them are subscription programs. So unfortunately, cable TV ruined the world because people started learning that you could do everything by subscription. You no longer can own your own version of PowerPoint. You have to subscribe to Microsoft and pay every month, right? The same is true for, for, for example, the Gamma Core VNS. It, it's a subscription service. They pay for a certain amount. They pay a certain patients pay a certain amount every month for a certain number of uses of the Gamma Core. That's also true for the Enerna armband. So you you pay, and they know because it runs through your cell phone. So they know how much you're using. Um, insurers are not always understanding of these electroceuticals yet. So some patients. We get them, some patients don't. I've had the company, I had one patient who was on um, Oregon Health Plan, I think it was, who wouldn't pay for the Nivrivio Migra, and the company put the patient on a patient assistance program and covered the whole thing. So it's always worth trying because you might get um, the company to kick in. And this is true not just for the electroceutical device, this is true for the medications. So a lot of the companies that make the more modern uh, agents, like the monoclonal antibodies, certainly the GPANs, they have excellent patient assistance programs that are particularly good for patients with commercial insurance, but can also work for patients in, in, in certain respects that can also work for patients who may be on government healthcare programs. Usually what happens there is they have to give it to them entirely for free. They can't do a copayment assistance. That's the, just the law. As you know, that's true for me medicines in general. Um, we have a, an imaging question. Um, is the yield of CT or non-contrast MRI reasonable for a typical migraine? I, I, I guess the question is CT, non-contrast MR, MR with contrast. So usually when you're looking for imaging for migraine, you, you're going to be worried about subtle things because if it were really something that would show up brightly on CT, you probably should have other clues by then. So I always try to get an MRI. And I try to get an MRI with contrast because you can pick up small neoplasms, for instance. Uh, and it'll also allow you to distinguish. So what sometimes happens, the radiologist comes back on an MRI without contrast and says, there's this little ditzel here that could be one of 20 different things suggest MR with contrasts. There you, then you have to do that anyways to look at it. One very important thing to keep in mind about migraine imaging on MRI, 
A lot of migraineurs will have what are called migraine spots. Those are very tiny, almost punctate T2, hyper, T2 flare hyperintensities scattered about in the cerebral white matter typically. And sometimes, depending on the radiologist, they might put in a differential, could be strokes, could be this, could be that. Um, but just realize that punctate T2 flare hyperintensities are just migraine spots when they occur in migraine nerves. Other questions? For patients that are on bipolar medications, um, is there a, what is the safety uh, for some of these um, uh, newer generation uh, medications in combination with other medications? So, so when we're talking about the CGRP acting medicines like the monoclonal antibodies for prevention, or the GPANs for symptomatic treatment. Um, they're very safe to use in combination with almost all medicines. Uh, the triptans, you have to worry about, theoretically, serotonin syndrome, although that happens very rarely. But patients go to the pharmacy, they're on Prozac, somebody prescribes them sumatriptan, and the pharmacist says, oh, 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 you know, this can cause serotonin syndrome. You should go talk to your doctor about that. <laughs> that happens a lot. But as far as most of the commonly used medic uh, psychiatric medications for uh, bipolar disorder and such, you, you, you're generally okay. There are some restrictions on use of the GPADs with respect to some of the uh, CYP um, enzyme-acting medications uh, that you have to worry about. Um, some of them, the, um, like, like ketoconazole, iatroconazole, there are some issues that, that come up with that. Um, but generally speaking, um, most of the common medicines out there are, are, are okay. Right. Okay. Any other questions? Yes. Pregnancy. Yeah? What are your top recommendations? All right. Do you have advice? If we have time, we can just fly through <laughs> that. Thank you. Thank you. All right. So non-pharmacologic approach is very important for pregnancy. Definitely contraindicated ergots, right? Um, lithium, anticonvulsants, tricyclics, um, NSAIDs, used with great caution. I don't use them, but if you have to. So symptomatic therapy. So this is one place where I do use opioids. So one of my common mixtures is a demerol fenergan suppository during pregnancy because the suppository gets over the GI issue, and they often have uh, hyperemesis gravidarum, right? So you have to use something a little different in those situations. So that's the one place where I would do that. I would avoid coding in that situation. Um, riboflavin, high-dose riboflavin for prevention. You can use that. Some people feel good about using butterbur extracts like Padillacs. Uh, ciproheptadine, if you absolutely have to. Remember I told you that one was actually tested in pregnant women. Um, if a pregnant woman or a lactating woman gets into trouble with status migranosis, so this is status migranosis during pregnancy, you can use dexamethasone. And that can be given um, PO or IM. You can also do a prednisone, um, or you can do IV methyl prednisolone. I don't have that on the list, but if you really want to stop it fast, you bring them in for IV methyl prednisolone, followed by um, oral prednisone taper. Those are safe enough to do. 
All right. And the summary. Listen to your patient. Ask the right questions. Come up with a plan. Educate the patient about the plan and about migraine. Very important. Empathize. They need that. And if necessary, change your approach. Because it doesn't always work with the first one or two things you try. Persistence is necessary. And encouragement of the patient is necessary throughout this entire process. Thanks for your attention. Thank, Thank you. you very much. And, uh, Thank you. Don't forget to uh, fill out an evaluation if you didn't get one at the back. I don't believe it. We went through 100 slots.